Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Hey, Paul. Thank you for dealing with my wild and crazy schedule this morning. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm great. Anyway, well, thank you for, you know, I was all set to be ready at 11, and then the nursing home called and said, can you please come up and play for gospel singing? And I can't say no to those people. So that that's when I, I said, well, I have to leave at 1045 to get back home at 11. And then at 1045, they're going, can we sing Amazing Grace one more time? And I'm like, I couldn't say no. So anyway, <laughs> so thank you. I appreciate it. So is your life going well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, not bad at all. I'm in good spirits. Good. That's a good thing. Well, I'm really, really looking forward to this today. I went to your website, and, I mean, like, you you know all the cool people. I mean, you're really slumming today to be with me, so thank you. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to introduce everybody to the, the very cheerful, energetic voice that you've been hearing. This is pianist, songwriter, performing artist, Janet McMahon. She is a producer of musical works, audiobooks, dramatic works. She has toured as a, the keys player for the late Roy Orbison. She's worked as a session keyboard player and vocalist in the studio for a very impressive list. Dolly Parton, Steve Winwood, John Denver, just to name a few. And she's had 1,500 songs published and printed, recorded by a pretty diverse list. How about this? Lynn Anderson, Sonny James, Frank Sinatra Jr., and Big Bird, just to name but a few. (laughs) I'm so honored to talk to you. Well... Paul, thank you so much. It's my joy. Thank you so much for the kudos and the and the the uh, reading out, you know, the list of a couple of things I've done. So thank you so much. It's it's been quite a fun journey. It really has been, and I'm just thankful that you know, at age 11, and I got a piano, so I'd know what to do with my life. You know, so so thank you. It's great to be here today. It's wonderful. And you said you got a piano at 11. Was music something that, was it just natural to you? You know, it was. My mother's mother lived with us much of my growing up, and she was a great, wonderful piano player by ear, but also she, you know, she could play rock, on and off, or home on the range, whatever you needed. She would play all the time, and so I would just sit at, you know, by her side and watch her. And uh, when I was 11, my dad was in business for himself. So, you know, there were, it was definitely feast or famine. And so we couldn't afford a piano. I wanted one so badly. And daddy came home from work one day and said that a distant relative had died and they wanted to know if we wanted the piano. And I literally remember I got down 
literally on the floor on my stomach and started like kicking up my heels and screaming for joy. <laughs> I did. I did. I mean, I, you know, I'm surprised they didn't lock me up at that point, but I was just thrilled. And so my grandmother kind of taught me not really like lessons, like we're going to have a formal piano lesson today, but you know, she'd always play something and then I just kind of imitate her. And so it came, I think it flowed from her to me and music was all, it's, it's really kind of all I ever, it was, it's, it's been my whole life ever since basically. So where does the story begin? Where were you born? I was born here in Nashville, Tennessee, Vanderbilt Hospital in uh, 1952, November 24th, 1952, and grew up here in Nashville. And I went to most of, almost all my life, I went to a school called David Lipscomb, which starts at kindergarten, and now it goes all all the way through a doctorate. It was just a just a four-year college, but I went almost all the way through with a couple of exceptions, you know, starting in kindergarten at age four. And so Lipscomb, David Lipscomb has been a huge part of my life, and I still have a whole lot of connections with the school, and I taught there for a while and still connected with the music department. I've accompanied in there at the university for functions there and for students. And, and so I, I just grew up here and graduated with a degree in piano performance, which means, you know, a lot of classical training, which that was not what I was the very best at. I got by that by the skin of my, got through that by the skin of my teeth because I was just more of an ear player, chart reader, improviser, that sort of thing. But I did graduate. I finally, I actually did get a degree in piano performance and then Shortly after that was when I got the call to, to join Roy Orbison. So that was that was just a super, super thrill. Do you, do you want me to talk a little bit about how that came about? Oh, definitely. Thank you. Well, there was a guy that I was in school with at Lipscomb named Joel Warren, and we had been in school groups together. The schools at that point, I don't know if they still do this, they had a recruitment group for the school where you'd go around to high schools and churches and just all sorts of places to promote the university, say, you know, come to Lipscomb. So Joel and I were in that group together. Well, he left school to join as Roy Orbison's piano player, now, not not keyboard. You know, it, he was a piano player because this was the 70s. This was kind of, you know, electronic keyboards were, I mean, they were around, but they weren't in their heyday. Well, Joel called me one day and said, Roy is looking to add an extra keyboard stuff synthesizer. Ooh, what a what an exciting thing. He says, would you like to audition? And after he picked me up off the floor, you know, I just said, Roy Orbison, are you kidding me? Yes, 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 yes. And so he said, well, no, it's not really exactly just regular like rhythm piano. You'd be playing the string parts and the horn parts and it's, it's a lot of music, he reading stuff. I said, well, you know, hopefully that degree I got from Lipscomb is going to help me out here. <laughs> so he got me the chart, and I locked myself in my in my room for about four days and just worked and worked and worked and worked. And about on the fifth day, I came out and I auditioned for Roy's band leader, a guy named Terry Widlake, who was British from Birmingham, and he was also Roy's bass player. 
And so I auditioned for Terry, and he said, you got it. And like two days later, we were in Reno. So, I mean, wow. it was just, what? It, it was very exciting because, I mean, I, I was just a, David Lipscomb at that point was a really reasonably small conservative school, you know, and I was a day student living at my parents' house. <laughs> and then suddenly I'm in Reno with Roy Orbison and a bunch of boys, you know, it was like, what? In fact, looking back, I'm surprised. I guess my parents really trusted me because I was young. I mean, I was college, just out of college. So uh, there I was, and I did it. And uh, just for a few years, like, I, this is terrible. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it was just, I mean, it was less than five. I do remember that. Three or four or something like that. It's been a while. But Roy was phenomenal to work with. You know, when you're on the road with somebody, you can see their foibles, but I never saw any of his. He was kind to every every flight attendant, every restaurant, maitre d server, every hotel clerk, every everybody. I never saw him raise his voice at a human being. I really he was very phlegmatic, easygoing, and he he was just a wonderful man. And what an experience for just this little college kid, you know? <laughs> I, I just I was just on my knees thanking God every second. It was so exciting. It really was. And we got to go. We toured a whole lot in Canada and, and you know, all over the United States. And we also went to, like, the British Isles. I'm so bummed, though. Right before I joined him, right before he had done an Australian tour and Neil Diamond got on the stage and sang with him. Wow. But that was right before I got there. So I thought, hey, I could have been hanging out with Neil Diamond. But I did miss that. But it was it was a great it was a great trip. I loved it. Loved it. One thing that everyone has said when I've asked them, anyone who has worked with Roy Orbison, they have all said something to the effect of what a wonderful guy he was. Absolutely. Absolutely. So kind. So so kind. And it was interesting though because I had, you know, been living I was right out of college. I mean, literally, I think I graduated in December, and I think I left on the road in June. So I was right out of college, living at home. And so suddenly, Roy was my father figure. You know, so Daddy wasn't there to tell me what to do and not do. So I figured Roy should. So, like, I was, you know, young, and I would meet guys and stuff on the road. And when I when I was first at it, I'd always go, Roy, I met this guy, and his name is, is Paul, and and or his name is whatever, and and he wants me to go to dinner. And you know, is that okay? And, yeah, that's fine. So finally, after I did this about ten times, he goes, "You know what? <laughs> as long as you show up for the gig, do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to have my permission to go on a date." And I'm like. Oh, that's right. You're not my dad. That's right. But he was very kind about it. That was just my naivete. I was just used to, Mommy, Daddy, can I do this? You know. So uh, so finally, uh, he, he, he spoke the truth kindly to me. He said, I want you to have a good time. You're a big girl. You can take care of yourself. So I'll never forget his, his genteel spirit in telling me, you know, I'm not your daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any numbers that you all would perform that you 
we're especially drawn to? Yes. Well, of course, pretty woman just stirs something in your soul like nothing. Just that bump, 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 you know, the iconic lick. It's just because I'll, I'll never forget that song was a hit when I was in the eighth grade. And I'll never forget there was a guy in my class that, that I kind of had a crush on. And he just showed up one day with the pretty woman, 45. And gave it to me, and it was like life changing. You know, eighth grade, you're just discovering all that stuff. So, so I'd always loved Pretty Woman. So to be on the stage with Roy Orbison playing Pretty Woman, it was it was like an out of body experience every single night. Of course, the audience was nuts. But I would have to say my favorite song was Crying. That was second. We opened with Only the Lonely. You know, the dum 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 dum. You know. And then went straight from that to crying. And to me, crying is just one of the most beautiful songs ever written. The melody, the words, it's just, it's so tender. So I would have to say, I still, when I hear crying, when I play crying at like a solo piano gig, I get tears in my eyes. Hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's spectacular. It's absolutely spectacular. But I, I actually love all of his Love all of his songs. I love Blue Bayou and Leah and, uh, you know, there was never a moment in that show that I wasn't ecstatic. So fun. Oh, yeah. So fun. Leah, what a great song. Well, yeah. what about your writing? When did you start to, to write things? Well, in the fourth grade. <laughs> in the fourth grade, I started writing poetry with my dad and I still have have you know the first poem I ever wrote so it started out with poetry and stories but I always always even as a little kid made up stories and songs and rhymes my whole life and then but as far as like professionally writing the first song I ever wrote like a complete real song, not not a fourth grade song, but like a real song, was with Becky Foster, you know, Bill LeBounty's wife. And I think we were in college, and it was called Goodbye Song, and it was recorded by Sonny James. And seriously, I, I can't believe Sonny James recorded it. I mean, it, it, it's like one of those kind of beginner luck things, you know, or beginner blessing, I don't know. We didn't really exactly know a lot about songwriting, but Sonny was kind enough to record the song, and we were so thrilled. I was at Lipscomb College, and Becky was at Pepperdine University, and they did a big article in her school paper at Pepperdine on it, and, and so that was that was my first foray into, like, a professional writing situation, and then shortly after that, it was kind of a twin spin. I was writing with Tommy Boyd, you know, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Bobby Hart. Have you ever interviewed Bobby Hart? We've talked on the phone, but we, we got to circle back around and do that. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Well, he's, he's awesome. I don't know him. I have met him. I don't know him. But I was writing with Tommy Boyd, you know, his former partner, I mean, his partner. We had a song that was recorded by... Lynn Anderson, who was, you know, a big star in those days, too. And so 
at first I was thinking, well, this songwriting is just easy. You just kind of throw something out there and it gets recorded. And then, you know, 872 songs later, I, I had another cut. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was, it happened really fast at the beginning. And, but then, you know, I realized that that was, I mean, it was quite a blessing, but not, not the norm. But can I tell a little story about the Lynn Anderson song? Oh, I'd love that. Thank you. Tommy and I were very good friends, too. And we knew that Lynn Anderson had a daughter named Lisa, a little girl. I guess she was probably seven, eight years old, something like that. So we worked on this song called I'm Growing Up All Over Again. And it's a mother looking at at the world through the eyes of her child. That's the whole perspective. And we thought this would be a good thing for Lynn Anderson because, you know, she has this little girl. And Lynn Anderson's husband at the time, Glenn Sutton, was the producer. So I met with Glenn Sutton and pitched the song, and then Lynn cut it. Well, this was in the 70s. For decades, I thought how I would love to meet this Lisa, this little girl, you know, that Lynn Anderson was singing this song about that probably because of Lisa, she was interested in such a song. So anyway, about a year ago, I have had a friend, and one day we were having lunch, and he said something about, yeah, Lisa Sutton and I, and I went, wait, Lisa Sutton? I said, would that any chance to be Lisa Sutton to Lynn Anderson and Glenn Sutton starting? Because, yeah, he says, we're really good friends. So I said to my friend, please, 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 I must meet her. Hmm. So about two months ago, my friend arranged a lunch, and now we have lunch. This this was probably three months ago. We've had like three lunches, and Lisa and I are now friends. And it's just it's just it's very very sweet because I think that was the little girl that her mother was singing the song to that I wrote back in the seventies. You know, so it was it, it was a full circle thing. But Lisa, Lisa is a is an awesome human being. She's just wonderful and lives right here in Nashville, not that far from me. And so it, it's just kind of interesting how the past comes back when you least expect it. You know, definitely, absolutely, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you tell us about about any other recordings that people have made of of your songs? I have had a few country, like I had a Helen Cornelius cut. I've had a more gospel cut, Sandy Patty and Larnell Harris and a girl named Johnny Erickson. I don't know if you're familiar with her, a gospel singer. But 99% of what I have done over the years has been writing children, mostly Christian some just educational, fun songs, and also theatrical production. Did one song for um, Sesame Street Records. That that was fun. It's called Itch and Scratch, and it's by Deferred. <laughs> so that that was, and I actually got to have lunch with Carol Finney, who is Big Bird, which was pretty fun. But most of what I've done, like I say, has been these recordings for children's choirs and. There, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tiny little piece of the music business pie, but I mean, these things in the day when children's church children's choirs were really big, 
I mean, these things would, they were like big, I mean, it, I was able to live indoors, you know, off the royal. <laughs> so that, that was, it was, it was really fun. And I wrote like the words and the music and the scripts and the stage directions and the costuming, you know, and the props and the director's note, you know, most of the time it's kind of one stop shopping. Plus, I was involved in the recording process as well. I had a group of children called the Kid Connection that we we got to just sing on. We we sang on all my stuff, of course, but then we we got hired out, you know, by the Steve Winwoods of the world and John Denver's and Dolly Parton to sing on records like that as well. But as far as my own writing, it was mostly these theatrical things, and and even now I'm still writing theatrical work that's that's really my thing. There's a company here in Nashville that licenses these works to high schools and universities and uh, I mean of course I would love to go to Broadway but I mean who wouldn't? But these are just more like like a summer stock group would do or something like that. But these theatrical works are published and in fact the one that I wanted to mention to you that I'm presently working on and have been for the past five years, which really reminded me of you, the Paul Leslie Hour helping people tell their stories. <laughs> this musical is the story of Shahrazad, the iconic female hero of of all these Middle Eastern and Asian folk tales. She's a mythical character, but she the story is she saved her kingdom by telling her story. Mm. And so mm. that's the theme of that musical. So I'll send you a copy once we're done. But we performed it about, I think we've done it like about five or six times, like at a local school here. And, you know, we're still perfecting. Every time you do it, you go, ooh, why do we do that? Change that. You know, take that song, cut that, pick up that tempo, slow that tempo down, all the things you do when you workshop. So we're still working. I have a partner that I've worked with on a lot of projects, a guy named David Hunt singer, who would be a great interview for you. He's fascinating and brilliant. Um, and he and I are working on that together. So I, the story of Jehazad is a story that my dad told me growing up. And so this is my, this is my thank you daddy musical, you know. Hmm. So that, that's, that's really, it's, it's fun. It's very fun. It's kind of a, Dramedy. I mean, it's a musical dramedy, I guess you could say, because it has a powerful message, but it's it's very comedic as well. So, very interesting. I would really, really love to check that out. Thank you. You know, I have to wonder because Big Bird is a character known to all. I can't remember the first time I saw or heard the voice of Big Bird. What's it like to be the writer of something and have a character like Big Bird there? The thing that you created is coming out of the mouth of this character. You know, it, the word is overused, but it's, it was kind of surreal. Actually, I co-wrote that song with a friend of mine named Dennis Scott, who, again, would be an incredibly wonderful interview. Dennis is a great guy. He lives in Nashville. He has, oh, he's, he's won Grammys. He's just, just a tiny little rabbit hole on Dennis. 
Dennis, when he was a kid, he was a Broadway star. He played Winthrop in The Music Man opposite Burt Parks and then opposite Eddie Albert. But then he, he grew up and became a, a songwriter and producer. And he has recently produced two recordings of Fred Rogers songs and one won a Grammy. So anyway, Dennis and I co-wrote Itch and Scratch, this song by Big Bird. And Dennis was from New York and had worked a lot with Sesame Street. So he held my hand a lot of the time, you know, you know, that worked. No, Big Bird wouldn't say that. Yeah, that's very Big Bird. No, no. Yeah, yeah, you know. So he was really my handholder teacher. He led me through that co-writing process. So it was, I mean, just to think about, you know, it was kind of very past. I mean, that's almost holy ground there, you know, Big Bird. So um, yeah, when I heard the recording, it it was hard to connect. That was really Big Bird singing my words and music. You know, it, it's ecstasy. It's it's a high joy. It's a high joy. I would have to say, probably. I mean, if anything I've ever worked on or recorded, that's probably been one of the thrills. Just because, I mean, Big Bird's just. Amazing. I mean, it makes everybody happy. <laughs> you know, who doesn't love Big Bird? So, and then to get to have lunch with him was a pretty big deal too. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was, I was so thankful. It was great. Absolutely. Well, quite a departure from Big Bird, but I, I mentioned at the beginning, you had a song recorded by the late Frank Sinatra Jr., a song called Loving you gets better all the time. Loving you gets better all the time. It slipped out of my mind for just a moment. But uh, can you yeah. tell us about how that came about and maybe what inspired that? Well, thank you for asking. At that point in time, it was the 70s, I was trying to, you know, I was co-writing a lot. I was writing on my own a lot. I was hanging out on Music Row, you know, just really trying to get in, working, you know, just pounding the pavement on 16th Avenue. And I became friends with a guy named Billy Strange. Did you ever interview him when he was alive? I never did. I'm familiar a little, but but tell us a little about him. Billy was a great guy. And I believe, I don't think I'm misspeaking, I'm almost positive he was Frank Sr.'s guitar player leader, band leader on the road. I, I believe that's right. It's been so long. Don't don't make me say that in court, but I'm pretty sure that was his, his gig with Frank Sr. And Billy also wrote the song, Memories Pressed Between the Pages of My Mind. Maybe Mac, Mac, Mac Davis, maybe? He wrote that. And he also wrote the Limbo song. Dun, 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 that song. So Billy was this super nice, Fun, colorful guy, just, oh, so fun. And we just became good friends, and I played on some demos in his studio, and he was just, he was awesome. And so I was talking to him one day, and he said that that he was doing a record on Frank Jr. Well, even when Jr.'s on the name, when you hear the name Frank Sinatra, it's just kind of, I mean, it's just magical. It's just completely, utterly magical. So I pitched this song, Loving You Gets Better All the Time, and Billy liked it. And then he called me like a few, maybe a couple of weeks later and said, Frank's going to be here at the studio and you should come. I'm like, oh, I was just, you know, verklempt. 
So I went to the studio and uh, got to see the recording and Frank Jr. asked me to sit in the, in the vocal booth with him. And of course, it, I just felt like I was like Lucy Arnaz in that new jazz singer movie with Neil Diamond. Not new, but not the old jazz singer. Anyway, so I got to know Frank Jr. a little bit and he was a very, very nice man. So that's how that came together. And that was just a, a treat. Of course, I was hoping. I thought, you know, maybe I'll get to be his best friend and I'll hang out with Nancy and Tina and <laughs> the whole gang. That didn't happen, but that's okay. That's okay. But it was, uh, and I love the recording. I think Frank did a great job and the orchestrations and everything were beautiful. It was recorded at Woodland Recording Studio in East Nashville. That was a high, too. And that, I think that, I'm not sure, but I think that was the same time I was doing the road with Roy Orbison or at least close in time period. So, I mean, I was just like, the whole world was like, whoa, this is exciting. You know, I was like <laughs> L.A. Clampett, gone to L.A. So um, it was it was really fun. And that's amazing that you found that song. I mean, how did you find that song? <laughs> well, I have I have the vinyl record of that. It's All Right is the name of the album. It came out in 1977. Yeah, I'm I'm a musical digger. I like to find things like, you know, I went and I listened to the Sonny James song you had recorded. I looked looked up the Big Bird song. Yeah, I like yes. to. Oh, my, thank you. I like to find things, you know. <laughs> well, that, I, that, that's so flattering. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very sweet. Thank you. Because, you know, to tell you I probably have not listened to any of those songs, maybe not even since the 70s. That's terrible. I should. But I don't even have copies. Isn't that awful? I can get you a copy if you like. You'd be my best friend. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Well, speaking of of this digging, there's something that, to me, I was very intrigued by. Billy Graham is somebody who has really captured a lot of people. Yes. People from all kinds of walks of life. I remember... One time, Bob Dylan was being asked who's inspired him. People were expecting a singer-songwriter, and in this particular instance, he was talking about how Billy Graham had inspired him. Can you tell us about, there was a song of yours that was featured on a Billy Graham crusade. Is that true? Yes. It was a song recorded by a man named Larnell Harris, a fantastic, oh, just incredible gospel singer. And it was called Let His Children Rejoice. And I didn't, I don't, I didn't see the broadcast. I just remember it showed up on an ASCAP statement. So I don't even know, I don't know where it was or if, I mean, I, I think it was done, you know, broadcast a bit because I, you know, I, I made more than 32 cents, but it was, um, I, I don't know what year, but Larnell Harris sang it. And then I remember when Larnell Harris recorded it, it's a song that had a little kids choir on it. So I got to, you know, write the song and then then got to do the kids choir on it too. And I will say this, my former husband co-wrote that song with me, Ted Wilson, and he's a brilliant keyboard player, arranger, and great writer. So we wrote that together. And I think that was, I guess that was probably around the late 80s, maybe early 90s, but I think late late 80s, I think. But his name is Larnell Harris, and he was 
phenomenal. And he did a few big duets with Sandy Patty, the phenomenal gospel female singer. That song was used on a lot of, well, I had about, I think I had five songs that she recorded, but one of them was used on a lot of, like, telethons, like, for children raising money for different causes. Not, not cerebral palsy, but, but, but what, some of those, those, uh, fundraising, big televised events that she would do. She sang the song and as a duet with her daughter. She sang it with her daughter on a lot of, a lot of broadcasts too. But I, I, I love the, the, these two Christian singers, Larnell Harris and Sandy Patty. They're, whew, they're amazing. And together, their big hit, which I did not write, is called I've Just Seen Jesus. You should look that up. That's a very powerful gospel song. So, but that's so interesting about Billy Graham, my goodness, and Bob Dylan. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Yes, I love that. I want to go back at the beginning when I was talking about the experiences that you've had doing session work and, and vocal work and that, that kind of thing, contracting with different people like Dolly Parton, one of my favorite artists, Steve Winwood. Can you? Yes. And then I said John Denver, Carrie Underwood. There's a, There's been a bunch of them. Can you remember one of those in particular that was especially thrilling? Well, the Steve Winwood thing was really cool because he was there. His wife was there. You know, sometimes you work for these people and they're not even there. You know, you're just you're working on the recording. But like my friend David Hunsinger has played on Aretha records, but he's never met Aretha. You know, so it's like at that point, Steve Winwood was there with us in the studio. And the song was the theme song from the movie Balto, B-A-L-T-O. I don't think it was Disney, but it was one of those big animated movies. And I think it was called Look for Look to the Light or Look for the Light, something like that. But he was there, and he was so kind. And he had married a girl from Belmont University, which is right here in Nashville. And uh, Eugene, oh, I can't remember her name. He's left me. But she was nice. He was nice. I mean, there was not an ounce of I'm Steve Winwood. N- not at all. He was great. But probably one of my favorite, well, in Dolly Parton, that was exciting. She was not there, but I've met her on other occasions. And then also, actually, a friend of mine and I, and I'm going down a little rabbit hole, a friend of mine wrote a show for Dollywood, a Christmas show for Dollywood that ran for several years, and so I had that Dolly connection, and, you know, like I said, I've known her through other things, but when we literally sang on her, her record, she was not there that day. But I would have to say John Denver. We probably had, oh, I'm thinking 10, 8, 10 kids in the studio that day, and these kids were real. I mean, they were always extremely polite and well-behaved, so it wasn't like a bunch of, you know, rowdy kids in the studio, but he hung out with us, like, all afternoon, like, when they were, you know, like, they do a playback and stuff, and so he'd just go out in the lobby and hang out with us. He was awesome. He was absolutely the kindest, funniest, sweetest, friendliest. I love John Denver. I mean, I can't believe he left us so early. He was just fantastic, because like I said, he was just, he was just one of us. He was one of the kids. So that might be 
Oh, I'd say that that's probably the height as far as a studio experience, you know, as far as like a star. Now, I will say this. He's not a star, but a couple of years ago, well, right before COVID, I got to work with a producer named Michael Boddicker, who is an incredible, he lives in California. Like I say, he's not somebody that you've heard of, like, Frank Sinatra or something, but he's produced. I mean, if you look him up, he's produced everybody. But I worked on a project with him and my friend David Huntsinger, and he was amazing just as far as the brilliance he brings to a project. Plus, he was fun to hang out with him. The studio was in his house, and he had had us, he would have us over for lunch every day. You know, like we'd sit out on his patio and have lunch with him. He was great. Again, not a household work. But Michael Boddicker, he was amazing. And he was really good friends with Steve Tyrell. And I got to know Steve Tyrell a little bit through Michael Boddicker. And I, didn't you say you knew, had interviewed Steve Tyrell? I had, indeed. Yes. Right. I don't know him well, but we did spend an evening at his house, and uh, he was great. So, I mean, I just am so blessed to have been around such phenomenally kind brilliantly talented people. I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, you know that thing called imposter syndrome where you're sitting somewhere and thinking, these people think I know what I'm doing, but like I'm just some dumb kid. I don't know anything. I I hope they don't find out about me. You know, (laughs) I feel like I'm imposter syndrome around such brilliance, you know. So, but like I say, as far as the name, probably the John Denver thing was, that was, pretty amazing and somewhere in my house I have a picture of John and all the kids and me and I haven't uncovered it but I would not have thrown it away so it's in the time capsule of my upstairs bedroom somewhere so <laughs> it, it, was, it was really sweet though I like him so much well something else that you you do since we've been conversing and texting and everything you perform quite a bit what you were doing this morning I'm hoping you can Tell us about this ongoing performances where you really, really are connecting with people. Yes, yes. Actually, little rabbit hole going back, when I was in the ninth grade, they say some people are obsessed with the past. I think I'm one of those people. When I was in the ninth grade, our high school librarian used to get about eight of us out of school once a week and take us to a nursing home to sing. Well, are you kidding me to get out of school in the middle of the day? I mean, you know, we would have gotten root canals, whatever, just to get out of school. You know, we were so excited. So, so we started doing that in the ninth grade and I never stopped. I, I, I've done steady gigs at nursing homes my whole life. And of course, during the years when I was raising my children and or on the road a lot. And I wasn't going regularly, but I always went some and loved it. So now that I'm sort of in these um, twilight years, that sounds kind of depressing, but I have just taken it on as my my calling, my joy, my bliss. You know, Joseph Campbell says to follow our bliss. This is my bliss, is going to the nursing homes. There's one that I go to more than others, but I go to several. This is called The Meadows, and it's about 10 minutes from my house. And I was just there this morning because they called me and said, you know, can you come do gospel thing? I'm like, I think Paul will let me be a few minutes late. So I went down there, and 
it's just, I just feel like these people, they just deserve so much. They've lived their lives. And I think there's only one person in this whole facility that's not in a wheelchair. And she's 106 and doesn't use a walker. So explain that. But anyway, they're sweet, wonderful people. There's a man, my friend, who is the former mayor of Hopkinsville, Kentucky. He's shaking hands with eight American presidents. But he's there in a nursing home, and, you know, he can't get up out of his chair. But he can clap his hands to that music, and he can sing along. And I just love it. In fact, after the interview today, I'm leaving to go <laughs> go call bingo. So, you know, I, I mean, all this is volunteer. You know, I just, I'm not, I'm not a paid, I'm not a paid spokesperson or anything. I just, I just, I just, I love it. And it's been meaningful to me because I do, well, what I found was, you know, I'm a, I'm a keyboard player. It's kind of hard to haul keyboards room to room, but I was wanting to go room to room some for the people who couldn't get out of their room. So, I picked up ukulele, which I started when I was 11 and had not played since I was 11. So now I've learned the ukulele so I can go room to room because some of these people are completely bedridden. They can't get out at all. Hmm. I mean, I I do a lot of, I mean, sometimes people are literally, I mean, they're ready to cross over. I mean, I think for people in comas, I think for people, you know, when they're ready to take their last breath, I try not to be obtrusive to their, you know, when they're getting ready to go, but I hold their hand and I sing softly. And if the family wants it, if the family wants it. But it's just, it's my, it's my calling, it's my joy, it's my bliss. I love it. I love it. Like today, I was playing Amazing Grace, and one of the ladies who was a former attorney who's in a wheelchair said, I love Amazing Grace. She said, when my husband died, he wanted his ashes scattered in the river by our house in Michigan. And he said, so we rented 20 boats and hired bagpipe players. And we all went out in the boat and had bagpipe players play Amazing Grace out on the river. And so we all sang Amazing Grace. I mean, it's, it's a moment, you know, I mean. I mean, it's fun getting songs recorded, and it's all that's all great and wonderful, and royalty checks are nice, but there's nothing that tops this. Nothing. Nothing. I'm just so honored and happy to be able to go. I love it. And, of course, it's hard because you get very close to people, and then they're gone. Hmm. But it seems like both my parents are gone, and... I don't know. I feel my dad was on the board that built this one particular nursing home. And so I feel like I'm carrying on his torch, you know, short question, long answer, but it's, it's what I spend a great deal of time doing now because I, and people say, Oh, that's such a great ministry. Well, it's, it's just a joy. It's not a sacrifice. I don't look at it as a sacrifice. I look at it Besides, I'm the youngest one there, and that makes me feel good. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you look through the thread of all these different things, from writing songs that are for children's productions to performing yes. at uh, these senior homes, and yes. is there a purpose to all the art you create that you would say, going through the thread of all of it, is there like a a main purpose to it? 
Oh, that's such a great question. Well, I know I'm not on a religious radio show, but I mean, I would just have to say I have been so blessed. I had the most beautiful parents in the world. They're just incredible grandparents. Just, I've been so blessed and with a, with a great school, with a, you know, my parents got the piano. I've been so blessed that I just, all this is really kind of out of, of an abundance of gratitude for my blessings and to God, actually. I would have to say that's it. I think every day, in fact, I, in my head and on paper, you know, I have kind of a personal mission statement, what I want my life to be about. And I think every day, how can I make this day in sync with that? You know, and if I start to feel sorry for myself or or fearful or depressed or anything, I'm thinking, you know, still got up with something good. Like, for instance, just personally, on a personal note, I guess this whole thing's on a personal note, but yesterday somebody really hurt my feelings. I think it was unintentional, but I, I cried for probably three hours yesterday, mm. just weeping, boohooing. So I got up this morning, you know, my stomach's hurting because I'm so hurt. And then I got the call from the nursing home. And then I went up and sang and played for those people. And I'm not hurting anymore. I'm not hurting. I mean, you can't just, you know, act like your problems don't exist. But it's like, that's a small thing as compared to, you know, you look and you see these people in the chairs and you think, I can do something that's maybe going to bring them a tiny bit of joy. They're so close to the end of their rainbow. Let's let them dip into the pot of gold just a little bit. So I say it's just really, I feel that it's all guided by just gratitude out of the abundance of so many blessings that I have been given. I would have to say that. And I don't, I, I like to say, I know I'm not on, I know I'm not on a Billy Graham show, <laughs> but I'm just speaking from my heart, speaking from my heart. I'm just, I'm grateful. So what are you the happiest doing creatively? I'd say two things. It's really and truly figuring out new ways to to be with those people at the nursing home, new songs, new ways to get them to sing along, you know, how to how to figure out how to play the hope do the hokey pokey in their wheelchairs, you know, things like that. That's really fun for me. And then another thing, probably writing lyrics. I love, I love writing music. Music comes a lot easier. Lyrics are very hard for me, but I love it. And I really love traditional theatrical lyric writing. I love the perfect rhymes, the matched syllables every, every verse. You know, if you, if you do a pickup, one time, do it the second time, you know, keeping everything matched like old Broadway, like Stephen Sondheim does, like Richard Rogers and Hammerstein did and Learning Low. I love all, the, I mean, I love a good country song, don't get me wrong. And I love a great pop song. I love, love, love it. But I think I am the happiest when I am working on a really intense, tightly crafted lyric. That is ice cream to me. <laughs> well, this this question is uh, it's a I guess you could say 
it wouldn't be possible. But if you could somehow go back and tell the Janet McMahon who was starting off in the very beginning of your music journey in your experience in the music business, if you could give her any piece of advice, what would that maybe be? It would be to listen to your own voice. Learn every single thing you can about all kinds of lyrics, all kinds of music, all kinds of writing of all sorts. And as a songwriter, listen to, listen to fiction book writing. Listen to Salman Rushdie interviews. Listen to Saul Bellow interviews. Listen to Danielle Steele interviews. Listen to, listen to any kind of writer and grab everything you possibly can. But, don't just be an imitation. Like for years, I was trying to write country songs, and I like country music. Don't get me wrong, but it's not my heart. My heart is more theatrical music. But for years, I kept thinking, "Oh, I got you know, I live in Nashville. I got to write country, country, country." Well, finally, I realized that's not my heart. My heart is writing these like plays for kids that are theatrical in nature. I'm much better at that. B, I would say. Quit listening to everybody else, what they're trying to tell you to do. Take advice and heed advice when you need to. But listen to that still small voice, that deep voice that is within you. That's the first thing. And the second thing is just stop worrying about, you know, are they going to cut this? Just do the work, jump in the net will appear, you know. Don't worry. <laughs> and I would still tell myself that today. Don't worry. Just do it. So two pieces of advice, I would say. I like that. Uh, especially don't worry, because <laughs> it almost <clears throat> never serves a purpose. I've, I've read worry is payment on a debt you don't owe. <laughs> I like that. Isn't that great? I love that. That might have been big, big, I'm not sure, but it's the truth. And I still do it constantly, constantly. And it's wrong and it eats you. And if, if you could think about, think about if you could go back to every second in your life that you have spent worrying and you could scoop up that time and it was given to you now to spend that time, what you could do with it. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be years. You know what I'm saying? So. Just, in fact, I literally, when I start worrying, I will literally audibly say, stop, stop, <laughs> and fill the swimming pool with fresh water, go to the nursing home, turn on a great Netflix show, do anything, but just stop it. Hmm. Stop it. And I've spent a lot of my life worrying. I think part of that's just personality traits, but I, what I need to work on, Definitely. Well, on the other side of the coin, what is the best thing about being Janet McMahon? Oh, that's such a sweet question. A couple of things. The memories that I have of my childhood. I mean, if my life turned, if I was in a wheelchair starting today and I was at the Meadows, I could just live in my head off my childhood. You know what I'm saying? I have so many sweet memories. That's 
about the best thing about being me is just that I've been given so many, just a great growing up. And the second thing is now the people in my life that are, that I love and that care for me. Recently, I had a kind of a weird thing with my eyes and I couldn't drive for a few days. I'm fine now, but, but it's like I had rides to every doctor's appointment, to everything. You know, it was just, it's the people. We all need each other. And most of my friends, to be honest, are theatrical music types, you know, so we're all like a bunch of bohemian crazies. But it's wonderful to be surrounded by great people and family. So I would say that's, that's the best thing. Oh, one more thing. And the fact that I can do music, I'm able to spend my time doing what I want to do. I mean, like, oh, I guess in my late 20s, I kept thinking, oh, this music thing is too hard. I'm not going to do it. So I decided to, like, I thought, I'm just going to be an executive. So I bought all these, like, dress for success suits, like the people, girls wore in the 80s with those ties. And I, and I tried out for this executive position, and I actually got it. And then the day before I was supposed to take the job, I thought, this is so not me. And I called people. I said, I'm so sorry, but I just can't take the job. So I put away all those suits and got back my ratty jeans and started playing piano again. You know, I just, I'm so thankful, thankful that I'm able to been able to do it. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've waited tables. I've done, you know, I've taught school. I've, you know, I've done, I've worked temporaries, you know, I've, you know, we just about everybody has to do some of that. But I'm, I'm just thankful that I've been able to make music my, not only my avocation, but my vocation. That's, that's one of the, one of the best things about getting to be who I am. Well, my last question, you just never know who will be listening and you never know when, you never know where they are. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in with us? Totally open-ended. I would have to say, don't worry. Just be happy. I mean, forgive me for stealing the, the title, but stop worrying. Don't worry. Be happy because everything is as it should be. And everything will work out if you just, if you just trust and you love. You just gotta, you just gotta love people. You gotta love what you do. You gotta love the art you make. You gotta embrace each day and you gotta push past fears and pain and hurt and just love. Well, Janet, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me, and thank you for the very, very interesting and entertaining and thought-provoking answers that you had to my questions. Oh, thank you, Paul. Now, I want to I, I, I ask you the questions and hear about you. I mean, turnabouts are you know, we'll have to do that another day, okay? Because I would love to hear all about you. Loved your website, loved seeing all the people that you've help tell their stories and I mean we all we all oh one more thing tell your story hmm. you know love <laughs> don't worry be happy and tell your story and listen to others stories that's right that's what I well put
Thank you. Well, you are a delightful interviewer. And if you're ever in these parts, consider yourself getting a, getting a lunch on me, okay? I would love that. I'd be thrilled to meet you. I would love that. <laughs> Same here. Thank you to anybody, all the people out there listening. I wish you great success and happiness and joy in telling your stories. And I just, it's an honor and thrill to be here. This was the perfect break between gospel singing and bingo. <laughs> beautifully, beautifully <laughs> stated. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Goodbye.